Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? Good to see all of you. We are still going strong in our series, Tearing Down Strongholds. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out and open up to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 is where we're going to be today. And before we kind of jump into the passage this morning, I want to start by asking you all a question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how distracted would you say you are right now? You can just hold that number in your mind. You don't have to show me with your hands or anything. You can maybe write it down on your notes. But, but how distracted would you say you are right now? You know, maybe you had a busy week. Maybe you had a frustrating or difficult week, and that's weighing heavy on you right now. Maybe you got into a fight with your spouse on the way here, and that's sort of rattling around in your mind how you're going to get back at them in the car ride home, you know? Maybe, maybe the temptation of your phone is just too much for like a 40-minute message, and so you're going to be checking your phone, and you're going to be on Instagram a little bit during this message. That's okay. I get that. That's fine. But how distracted are you right now? Zoom, zoom out a little bit, though. How, how distracted would you say you are in life right now, like in general? Do you feel like your life has a sense of focus? Do you feel like your life has a sense of meaning, of purpose, of direction, or does it feel like you are being pulled apart in a variety of directions, being tossed to and fro, and there's just so much chaos in your life right now? You just feel distracted. You lack focus. See, the reason I, I start here is because I, just, I want us to understand that to be distracted can ultimately have devastating consequences for us. It's something we need to take really seriously. Um, back in 2005, summer of 2005, um, I was dating my now wife, Carrie. And uh, I'm not sure what the circumstances and situations were, but we were hanging out one day in Oregon, okay? Um, she was in Oregon, I was in Oregon, and um, I picked her up, and we were in my car, and at the time I was driving a 1994 Forest Green Dodge Spirit. I can see the jealousy in all of your eyes right now. <laughs> You're just like, that's a really cool car. And it was, and it was. It went to a zero to 60 in about as many seconds. It was a, a, a fantastic car. And so we're driving in that car, and we're in South Oregon, and the roads are winding along. And, and in, in, in a moment of driving, I got distracted. I would like to say that I never get distracted while driving, but my wife would beg to differ. And so I was on my iPod. Remember iPods? You know, this is like pre-iPhone days. I'm on my iPod, and I was looking for the right song for the perfect moment with Carrie. So I'm trying to find the right song, and I, I find the right song. And seemingly as I find the right song, the road that we're on is barreling down and making a sharp turn to the left. And I wasn't ready for it because I wasn't focused on the road. And so I started to pull the car to the left, that 94 green Dodge Spirit. But for whatever reason, it just didn't have what it took to stay on the road. So it continued to careen to the right, and these rolling roads and this valley off to the right was there. And, and the car, I, I slammed on the brakes, but it continued to go to the right and hit the shoulder of the road. And we hit the dirt, and we slid, and we slid, and we slid until we didn't slide anymore we began to tumble down this hill. I'm just kidding, we didn't tumble down the hill. <laughs> You're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> woo! No, we didn't. We slid and we finally stopped and we hit this embankment. And I took a deep breath and I was like, <sighs> I, turned to my, I turned to Carrie, I said, wow, that was close. And she looked at me with a fury I don't think I've ever seen in her eyes before. <laughs> and she said, get out of the car, I am driving. 
I'm the captain now. And I said, yes, you are. Fair enough. You can drive. I was distracted. My focus was not where it was supposed to be. Listen, distractions can lead to devastating consequences, and not just, in, not just while we drive, but in our lives as well. And this is an especially pertinent idea with respect to the stronghold we're talking about today, which is anxiety. Anxiety. The Oxford English Dictionary defines anxiety like this, a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. And I want to be clear right off the bat that in many situations, anxiety is not sinful. Anxiety, that that initial feeling of, of worry or nervousness, is a very natural reaction to experience, you know, especially if you're going into a big meeting with a boss or having an important conversation with your spouse or a parent or have a big test or big game coming up. We're going to feel nervous. We're going to feel anxious in that moment. And so I want to be clear that oftentimes the initial feeling is not the problem itself. Do you get that? Here's the problem. It's what we do in response that oftentimes leads to the problem. And I think this ultimately hinges, okay, it hinges on where our focus is. So our big idea this morning is this. When anxiety rises, and it most certainly will, where I fix my focus will determine whether I fall apart or find peace. When anxiety rises, where I fix my focus will determine whether I fall apart or find peace. When anxiety flares up in my heart, We can't afford to be distracted or else it's going to have devastating consequences and anxiety is going to begin to take root in our hearts and make a stronghold there. You see, there's a difference though between when the Bible talks about anxiety and when a dictionary, a modern dictionary talks about anxiety. In the New Testament, the noun for anxiety is this word meritso. And it's oftentimes translated anxiety, but more often it's translated as care or cares. And the verb form of this word is translated to be anxious. And so when the Bible is saying to be anxious, here's what it means. It means to have a distracting care. It's beyond just that initial physiological or emotional response that we have to a fear-inducing moment, but it's an actual temptation and distraction to care more about a thing of the world than about God himself. And that's a problem. That's a reality that the follower of Jesus just can't afford to be true in their lives. When anxiety rises, where I fix my focus will determine whether I fall apart or find peace. And we're going to see this in our passage today in Matthew 6. But before we jump in there, would you just pray with me? Let's commit this time to God. God, we just want to invite your presence here again. We invite your spirit to move and work in power. It is only by your power that you will open the eyes of our hearts and propel us toward transformation and toward change and toward Christ-likeness. And so I pray right now as we address this stronghold of anxiety, Lord, that we would um, be um, taught by your spirit about the directions, the wrong directions we go, and would you give us encouragement and hope to move forward and see victory over this stronghold as you send us out in a new direction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, uh, we find ourselves in the middle of Jesus' sermon on the mount. And he has just finished talking about laying up treasures in heaven. And Jesus is talking about the difference between serving God and, and serving money. And he's saying, you can't serve both. 
You can't have a distracted care in your heart. As a follower of Jesus Christ, the truly devoted cannot be distracted like that. And so he builds off of that argument in our passage this morning in verse 25. Jesus says this. He says, therefore, indicating that he is building off of his previous argument. He says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them all. And are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And so we'll stop there. What Jesus is getting at here is he begins to highlight and draw our attention to three specific areas where we tend to place our focus wrongly. And the first one that he draws our attention to is our stuff. Where does my focus tend to go? Well, Jesus says initially on my stuff. Look again at the second half of verse 25. And as we are engaging with this passage, with this teaching of Jesus, I want us to be really mindful of the way he's constructing his argument here, okay? And so he starts by asking a question, a rhetorical question here at the end of verse 25. And the question is this, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And the answer to this rhetorical question is a resounding and obvious yes. Of course, life is about more than food, and it's about more than clothing. And so Jesus asks this question. This is part of his argument. He asks this question, but he doesn't answer this question. He just lets it sit. And he moves from a question to an example. What's the example regarding? It's regarding birds. He starts talking about birds in verse 26. Look there. Jesus says, he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. So why does Jesus start talking about the birds? Why does he draw the attention of his audience to the birds of the air? Well, we'll see more fully in just a moment, but I think one reason why Jesus draws our attention to the birds is, I don't know when the last time was that you spent time looking at birds, but maybe, do we have any bird watchers here today? Like watching birds, a few of you? But birds don't appear to be nearly as anxious as we are, right? Like I was working on this message at my home office. It's in the front of our house. We have these two windows and I had them opened up and no one was home and the entire house was quiet. I had no music playing and I was typing this message out and I was just listening to the birds and they were singing their little hearts out and they were flying around, and they just seemed to be enjoying their lives. I didn't see a single bird pacing to and fro, rubbing his wings together, being like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get a worm today. I didn't see it. I I didn't see it. That's because our heavenly Father feeds them all. But now listen to this about birds. Um, Do birds just merely perch themselves on a branch and mechanically wait for God's hand to feed them? No, right? What do they do? 
They, they search for their food. They hunt for their food. They go out for their food. And listen, there's no sense here in Jesus' argument that we are to be simply passive with respect to our provision and with respect to our stuff. God calls us to go out and to work hard and to build things and to provide and to be generous. But listen, what Jesus is calling us out on here is placing so much focus on building our own kingdom and securing our own provision and caring about this stuff so much that it becomes this all-consuming, preoccupying desire. And listen, when you do that, you will grow anxious about these things because you will be holding them so tight and anxiety will begin to take a stronghold in your heart. That's what happens. And so Jesus is like, look at the birds. Look at the birds of the air. Your father feeds them all. And, and what Jesus is saying here is we don't have to worry about our stuff. We can go out and we can work hard day after day, but we don't ever have to worry that we'll have enough because Jesus sees us, he knows our needs, he cares for us, and he will provide for us. Look at the question he asks in verse 26. So Jesus asks a question, he gives an example, and then he follows it up with another question. Look at the question. After talking about the birds, he says, are you not of more value than they? And the obvious answer to this question is what? Aren't you more valuable than a bird? Yes, you are. You are absolutely more valuable than a bird. You are created in the image of God and you are loved beyond your wildest imagination. And so if the heavenly father is going to feed the billions of birds in this world, will he not take care of you? He absolutely will. He absolutely will take care of you. He will provide for you exactly what you need. And so the first thing Jesus calls us out on here is he says, hey, don't fix your focus on your stuff. Don't do that, because when you do that, you will begin to fall apart. The second thing Jesus calls out here is, is our future. Our focus tends to go on my future. You know, many great teachers and thinkers have, have talked about anxiety and about worry, and they've placed it as a future-oriented problem. Rarely ever do we look back on our past and grow anxious about our past. If we look back on our past and experience some negative emotions, it's usually remorse or guilt or regret. It's not until we turn our attention toward the future and fix our mind about what's going to happen and what's my life going to look like in two years and five years and 10 years and 30 years and that we begin to grow fretful and we worry and anxiety begins to take root in our hearts. Why? Because we focus on the wrong thing. And so Jesus draws our attention to this, and he doesn't use the same structure of his argument that he did previously with a question and an example and a question. He just simply asks one question here. Verse 27, look there. Jesus asks another rhetorical question, and he says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And, and the obvious answer to this question, everyone, is what? None of us can. None of us can. As hard as we might try, you cannot add a single moment to your life. But man, do we try, don't we? I came across this article this past week. It was a couple years old, titled, How to Live Forever. And it was about these really extreme, crazy guys called life extensionists. Has anyone ever heard of these guys before? The life extensionists? It's all about these, these dudes. What they want to do is they, they want to extend their lives in abnormal ways. This guy named James Stroll, he started this organization called the Coalition for Radical Life Extension. 
And their aim goes beyond the modern accomplishments of medicine. You know, we're living longer than ever. We're healthier than ever. We're living into our late 70s, our 80s. But they don't want just a few years. They want decades. They want centuries. They want to live forever. This is pulled from their website, on their coalition's website. They write this. The deafest paradigm has to go. As if it's like something that we've sort of laid upon ourselves that we can just sort of deal with, you know? It's time to look beyond the past of dying to a future of unlimited living. Sounds pretty cool, huh? Their ways of trying to do this are borderline psychotic, if not psychotic. Their founder, James Stroll, this is him right here. He takes, listen to this, 70 different supplements every single day. Insane. He lays on this electromagnetic mat for an hour, which supposedly opens up the veins of his body so his blood can flow better throughout his body. Some of these people will do this intensive fasting stuff and they do expensive stem cell treatments. One guy, in order to create a healthy brain, reads the newspaper upside down. And when that becomes too easy, he reads it upside down and in a mirror. And you can tell by looking into this guy's eyes that it is working, right? (laughs) That is a picture that we will see in our nightmares tonight. You can take that off. Why do they do this? It's because their focus is fixed on the future. They've become so preoccupied with it. They've become obsessed with it. It's their all-consuming passion to add days, years, decades to their lives. But what does God's word say about this? Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Listen, the God who is sovereign over your material needs is sovereign over the path your life will take. He knows the days you will live, and in each and every one of them, he knows their substance. Nothing that you encounter in this world will ever take God by surprise. He will never be caught off guard. And so whether you encounter something small, frustrating, an unpaid bill, whether you go to the doctor and get the most terrible diagnosis you can imagine, none of those things catch your God off guard. He cares for you. Cares for you. He has your future in his hands. And we can entrust that to him. We don't have to worry. We can't fix our focus on our future because we will fall apart. Here's the next thing Jesus calls out. We can wrongly fix um, our focus on our reputation, on my reputation. So looking back at the passage again, at verse 28, what we're going to see is that Jesus uses the same structure of argumentation that he does for that first concept of my stuff. He's going to ask a question, he's going to provide an example, and he's going to ask another question. And so the first question that he asks in verse 28 is this. Jesus asks, he says, and why? Why are you anxious about clothing? Why are you anxious about clothing? And like any good teacher, Jesus is repeating himself. So if you look at the whole passage, this is actually the third time that Jesus addresses clothing. But listen, slightly different angle here. He doesn't ask about the content of the clothing. Would your God provide you clothing? This isn't so much about I'm worried about whether or not I'm going to be dressed 
or have clothes, Jesus asks it differently. Do you see that? He says, why? Why are you worried about clothing? And so Jesus is now changing it up a little bit, and he's getting at our hearts, our motives. And then he provides another example in verse 28. He says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So again, primarily Jewish audience. And so Solomon to them would have been everything. Like he was the greatest and he was the richest and he had amazing clothes and he had amazing palaces and, and, he, and he, had, he had all this stuff and he had all this wisdom and all this discernment, so much so that his reputation preceded him. And all these kings and queens from the ancient Near East would come and visit him to just see it and marvel at it. You can read in the Old Testament, this stuff is in there. So the Jewish audience would have been like, yeah, Solomon, he's amazing. But what does Jesus say? As awesome as Solomon was, his reputation pales in comparison to who? To what? To flowers. To flowers. When's the last time like you were like, flowers, those are amazing. And Jesus is like, flowers. The flowers of the field. Listen, while Solomon both humbled himself and worked hard and, and, and built up God's kingdom and built God's temple, and, and that was amazing, and there's nothing wrong with that. What Jesus is saying is flowers outpace Solomon, and they neither toil nor spin. They simply are. They exist, and they draw from the ground the nutrients God provides for them in the moment. These flowers here are in the Golan Heights in northern Israel, perhaps Jesus' audience thought of these flowers when he talked about the flowers of the field. And, and what Jesus is saying is we might try as hard as we possibly can, but there's something essential about the texture and the color and the beauty and the makeup of flowers that we will never be able to duplicate. We just won't. And so Jesus then follows this example up with another question. He asks this question in verse 29. He says, but... But if God so clothes the grass of the field like this, which today, then he says this, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And so this grass that, that God cared for, that was beautiful, that, that was marvelous, the people who were listening to him would go out into that field and chop the grass down and throw it in their ovens and, and use it to bake bread. This was part of their practice. And so Jesus is saying, this grass that's so transient, that's here today and gone tomorrow, if I'm going to clothe it with so much beauty and its reputation is going to precede it and we can't do anything to match it, how much more will I take care of you and go before you and secure your reputation and your honor? So much more. So much more. And rather than fix our focus and fret about our image and our position and our power and our reputation, which we so often do, don't we? How many of you, like tonight, are going to be thinking about work and having to go to work and working hard? And we work hard to climb some sort of figurative ladder. For what? For our reputation? To be the top dog at the office? 
for, for a promotion, for a pay increase? How much anxiety do we experience over the worry we have about our reputation in our workplaces? Or think about social media. Like, how much anxiety does that bring us? And we don't even recognize it, right? We're only now just beginning to recognize how much anxiety that brings into our lives. Fretting over posting the right picture and, 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 and commenting the right thing and, and looking at other people's highlight reels and being like, am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Am I a good enough mom or dad or spouse? And we fret and we worry and we grow anxious about our reputation, about what others think of us. But when we fix our focus on securing our reputation, it will for sure lead to anxiety taking a stronghold in our lives. What we have to understand here is God wants something so much better for us. He doesn't want us to be anxious about these things. He wants us to have freedom. He wants our focus somewhere else. But where is that focus supposed to be? Look at verse 31. Jesus says this, therefore, we've got another therefore. And so what Jesus is doing is he's building on his previous argument. And he's saying, given everything I've said above, I've just shared with you, therefore, what does he say? Do not be anxious. He repeats himself. Do not be distracted. Listen, church, do not fix your focus on the wrong thing, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Verse 32, Jesus says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But, and so Jesus draws this sharp contrast here between those who are distracted by the things of the world and what followers of Jesus Christ should be focused on. And he says, but, listen, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Stop worrying about the future, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for, for, for the day, for right now, is its own trouble. So here's what I want to do. In these remaining four verses, rather than give you some sort of detailed prescription roadmap for the way out of anxiety, I, I want to draw three questions from these last four verses that we can be asking ourselves today and throughout the week to regain focus on what God wants us to focus on. And so here's the first question I want us to draw out of this passage. It's this, am I shaped by my surroundings? Am I shaped by my surroundings? And so what Jesus does here in verse 32 is he adds a little sting into his argument. He's telling his, his audience, hey, hey, don't focus on these other things. Don't worry about these other things. Because listen, don't the Gentiles worry about these things? Look at verse 32. He says, for the Gentiles... For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And so again, Jesus' audience would have been this primarily Jewish audience in Judea. And, and Gentiles, you know who Gentiles were? Gentiles were, were pagans. They were heathens. And so listen, what Jesus is not, listen, what Jesus is not trying to do is he's not trying to create some sort of moral superiority complex. Like, you guys are better than that. He's not trying to say that. Now, that existed there. There was this sort of moral superiority complex, and Jesus is not encouraging that. He's not playing into that. But what Jesus is doing is he, essentially he's doing the opposite. He's saying, listen, you guys can't plead ignorance. You can't plead it. He's, he's talking to these people who had divine revelation from God. The oracles of God, they had scripture testifying to who God is and who they were and God's promises to them. And he's like, 
The Gentiles don't have that. They don't know who I am like you do. And, and, and they also had story after story of God's testimony of his faithfulness to them, even when they were faithless. And so essentially what Jesus is, is getting at here is he's saying, if you're falling apart because of your anxiety, aren't you just like everyone else? And so we have to ask ourselves if we're falling apart when life gets hard. If we're falling apart when crisis strikes and we fret and we worry and we grow increasingly anxious and allow the stronghold of anxiety to take root in our hearts, are we responding? Are you responding like those who know nothing of a heavenly father who knows your needs and cares for you and wants to provide for you? We have the very words of God right now in your hand and maybe on your phone testifying to the nature of who our God really is, the promises that he has made to us. And listen, I get that fretting about the future is a real thing. I freak out about it all the time. What does God's word say about who he is? He will provide. But when we freak out and and fall apart, when life gets hard, are we not responding and reacting just like the world around us? And so we have to ask ourselves, what's shaping us? What's shaping me? Is it the reality of God's word and God's truth and who he is and and my my relationship with him and his testimony over the history of my life? Or am I being shaped by the world around me, by the patterns of this world? Am I shaped by my surroundings? Here's the second question we see, and it relates to the first one, but it's this. Am I aware of who my heavenly father really is? Am I aware of who my heavenly father really is? And we briefly read this, but at the end of verse 32, Jesus says, Yeah, the Gentiles go after this. But listen, you know you have this heavenly father that knows that you need all of these things. And listen, church, I think that so much of our trouble with anxiety and with worry stems from this reality that so many of us are not deeply acquainted with who our God really is. And we have sort of a shallow surface understanding of who the, we can have a relationship with the creator of the universe. Do you recognize that? That God is not so far off and so transcendent that we can't know him. That God has gone above and beyond to make a way so that we would know him. He leaped across that infinite chasm, sending his son, Jesus Christ, so so that he could be fully known by us. Dying the death we deserved so that not only would we have eternal life, but that we could have life in the here and now and have it abundantly by knowing this good, awesome, intimate God who is here and who is with us. Do you know this God? Have you spent yourself getting to know this God? Are you aware that this God's purposes for you are unchanging? This is a reality about our God, that his purposes for you are unchanging. That when you encounter hardship, when you encounter trial, when you encounter a dark season, that God knows and he sees and he is with you, that his purposes and his plans for you have been established before the foundations of the world. And God promises that he will finish what he started in you. So even when life gets hard, do you recognize that God is there and he sees you and he's with you and he's walking with you and that even the hard seasons of life can't thwart God's purposes and plans in your life? Are, are, are you aware that God's love for you is absolutely unfathomable? That God the Father looks down upon you individually right now, and he, he, he loves you. He cares for you. He is passionate about you. And you have to look no further than the cross to find evidence for that. 
While we were enemies of God, he sent his son to die for us. If God is willing to do the impossible, motivated and propelled by his love, how much more is he going to do all the small things? That's a promise from God's word. Are you aware that God's love for you is unfathomable? Are you aware that God's power that is working for you is unmatched? That the God that we worship is the creator and sustainer of this universe, that he causes nations to rise and nations to fall, that this power conquered our biggest problem, sin and death, and that this power is now working in and through and for you. Do you believe that? Like like Paul, when he's writing to the Ephesians, he says this. He says that our God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according, listen, according to the power at work within us. And that's not your power. That's not my power. That's God's power. Can you imagine if we really believed these things to be true? This reality? Can you imagine if we were really embedding ourselves in this understanding and a deep relationship with God? What would happen to our worries? What would happen to our cares? What would happen to our anxieties? Listen, if you're going to be anxious about anything, be anxious about your relationship with God. Jesus calls us to be a single-minded people going after one thing. And in fact, here's our last question this morning. It's this. Am I giving my best to go after the best? Am I giving my best to go after the best? A lot of great things to go after in this world. And, and, and the freedom that God affords us, he, we can go after those things. But listen, am I giving my best to go after the best? Look at verse 33. Jesus says, don't focus on all of these things, but he says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And listen to this promise. Don't let your familiarity with this text diminish the amazing nature of this promise. That when we seek first the kingdom of God, all these things, all the things I was worried about, Jesus says, will be added to you. Pursue that. God is faithful to his promises and he calls us, this is what he calls us to. In the face of anxiety, Jesus calls us to one simple thing. Seek. Seek. The Greek word for this word seek, this verb is zetete. It's an imperative in the present active tense. And so an imperative is a command. This is what we are called to do in the face of anxiety, in the face of worry, is to seek. Because Jesus knows we need to go after something. He knows we need to pursue something. And so he says, seek first my kingdom. Present tense, do it right now. Active, do it every single day. It's not a one and done sort of thing. We do this every single day. Seek first the kingdom. How do we do that though? Sounds like, you know, religious talk. What is the kingdom? Is it some sort of castle that's floating on some cloud in the sky? No, no, no. If you look in the New Testament, um, in most English translations, the um, word or phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is translated like 127 times in the New Testament. And the kingdom of God is this. The kingdom of God in the Bible is simply God's redemptive rule and reign in the world. And the epicenter of that reign is in the person of Jesus Christ, King Jesus. And so the first step towards seeking the kingdom of God is seeking the king, is going after Jesus Christ, is pursuing him. 
in all things. And it should change everything. Pursuing Jesus Christ, seeking first the kingdom of God, should alter our relationships, should alter the way we engage with work, should alter the way we deal with our finances. Everything should change when we seek Jesus, that pursuit. You know, before that car incident with Carrie in the summer of 2005, I first laid eyes on Carrie in January of 2005. I was at Moody Bible Institute, but I was working at Starbucks and I was making drinks and she walked in and there was something about her, I'm telling you. There's something about her. She walked in and I was like, I am going to marry that girl. And so I made it my single-minded, borderline psychotic pursuit to go after her. <laughs> and you could talk to her. She's like, yeah, he was crazy. But I, I was just like, I, I need to get to know her. I need to spend time with her. I need to pursue her. So I called her all the time. Anytime I went to go get coffee, it was like, Carrie, you want to go hang out? Anytime I did homework, hey, you want to go do homework together? And so after a few months, she finally relented and we started dating. But you know what? Things changed. As I pursued and gave so much of my attention and energy toward her, my friendships changed, right? There's a direct correlation to, to my rising joy experience with Carrie and my falling GPA at school. Seriously, things changed. But I don't regret it for a second. I don't regret it for a second. Pursuing Carrie was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. How much more can I tell that to all of you? Jesus calls us to pursue with a single-minded passion the kingdom of God, the king of God himself, Jesus, especially in the face of worry and anxiety when we are seeking that peace that surpasses all understanding. Isaiah 26.3 says this, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And listen, this is beyond some sort of intellectual ascent. When the Hebrew Bible talks about the mind, it means the whole person. And so would our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and our entire being be so engaged in a pursuit after King Jesus that we would begin to experience that perfect peace and he keeps our mind in peace, even when it doesn't seem like we're gonna have enough stuff, even when our future seems uncertain, even when our reputation seems to be in jeopardy, <laughs> Jesus has you. And all we need to do is seek him. And all those things will be added. Are we giving our best to go after the best? Let's pray. Jesus, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us for for fixing our focus on the things of this world and becoming so preoccupied with them and delighting them in such a way where we think this is it. Being so preoccupied with our stuff or the perfect plan for the future, securing our, rep whatever it is, Lord, would you forgive us of going after those things and fixing our focus on those things? It is the source of so much worry and anxiety in our lives. Instead, Jesus, right now, we pray that your spirit would compel us to seek first your kingdom, to seek you, Jesus, and to seek your rule and your reign in our lives. And when our hearts begin to grow worried and when anxiety rises, would our focus not be on the things of this world, but would they be on you? 
And would we be so unlike those around us that when life gets difficult and life gets hard, there is just a steadiness because you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is set on you. Would we be those kinds of people? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. Help us to be obedient to it now, we pray in Jesus' name.